This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. Yeah, all this stuff that I grew up with, it's all sort of coming out in my work and um, I'm really embracing it, actually. Um, these things that was super formative for me. Um, even though I veered off into all these other areas, I kind of keep coming back to this this thing that really was really powerful. You know, when you're young, all these things are so huge. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of digging, digging that. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. Australian-born experimental guitarist Oren M. Barchi's work is unmistakable. At times staccato, repetitive, melodic, dense, and layered, always coiling looped ribbons of sound around the listener. Frequently working with similarly-minded collaborators such as Jim O'Rourke, Julia Reedy, and Finesse, his 2022 release, Shebang, a favorite here at Essential Tremors, is a particularly potent example of the spells he weaves in his slowly building, long-form compositions. The first song Ambarchi chose as being formative for him was Flying by Keith Jarrett.
Um, this was really torturous trying to pick three songs because, yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> There's so much music I love and so many things that are so formative and it's really, really hard to narrow it down. And I this is by no means definitive, but, but um, three things. Uh, one thing that popped into my head was a Keith Jarrett uh, piece called Flying. And it's from an album called Changes, uh, which came out on ECM in 1984. And I think I was 15 when I bought this record. And uh, it was, you know, I was a Jarrett fanatic, um, really into all kinds of jazz, free jazz. ECM was a big, big thing for me and still is because I had access to it. It was sort of around everywhere and I could, I was <clears throat> interested in this sort of world and um, it was easy to access this stuff. I could go to a used record store and buy a bunch of ECM records for not a lot of money. So, and one one thing was, yeah, really getting into Jarrett. <clears throat> um, but this particular piece really stuck with me at the time. And now in hindsight, I kind of hear why and I hear how it sort of influenced what I do. It's really single-minded. And it's, it's a trio of, of Keith Jarrett, Gary Peacock on bass and Jack DeJunette on drums. And I was a drummer at the time and Jack DeJunette was one of my favorite drummers, um, still is. And something about this piece, it had this thing where Gary Peacock was basically almost playing one note. And they were kind of, he was sort of sticking to this one tonality, one key. And Jack DeJunette was, had this, the way he was playing had this very propulsive sort of pushing um, feeling about it where there was always this momentum. And Jarrett was kind of just doing his thing on top in a very free, open way. And it sort of goes like that for the whole side of an LP and it continues on the other side. <clears throat> so now I sort of recognize um, why I love that so much and still do, it is this thing, it's almost like this crowd rock thing where there's just this momentum happening. They're exploring this, this idea with this rhythmic sort of recurring rhythmic sort of propulsion for an extended period of time. And it's really mesmerizing, really open. Uh, and that absolutely influenced what I do. Um, a lot of my pieces, such as Shebang, which you just mentioned, Hubris, um, Knots, a lot of those pieces have this thing where there is this rhythmical momentum underpinning the whole piece and then a whole lot of stuff is sort of happening around it, which is kind of open, maybe textural, maybe abstract, but it's sort of framed by this rhythm. Um, so that's why I chose that piece. This rarely happens where somebody describes one of their songs and it matches so exactly with the descriptors that you might have for that per, for the for the guests own material their own music. But I wrote down, you know, mm -hmm. you were you're a drummer, which makes a lot of sense to me when you when you were younger. Um, just do the ryth yeah. rhythmic qualities of what you do. You're talking about in, in flying, you know, the one note uh, that's just carried on uh, and looking at, kind of looking at tonalities of that. It's propulsive. It has momentum. It's free and open. It goes starts on one side, can, can, goes all the way through, and continu continues on the other side. There's a recurring uh, rhythmic sort of component, the propulsion again, and it's mesmerizing, which is like 
exactly how I would describe what you do. And especially on the most recent record, Shebang. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it's, it's, it's still, it's still very um, <clears throat> single minded, but there's something really open about it as well, which I love. It's not just, you know, this recurring rhythm that's happening with stuff occurring around it. There's still, it's still kind of on the edge where it could fall apart or it, you know, it's just open to possibility. And I, I love that as well. Um, I don't want to make music that's really sterile and, you know, it's just driven by a rhythm and that's it. I want it to feel <clears throat> like it could kind of go anywhere. And the music that I love has that feeling. And this is definitely one of those pieces that, that really inspired me when I was young, probably in a really unconscious way. I didn't really get, I was so young. I was only 14 or 15, but I did, but something about it really drawed me. Yeah. To, to what was going on. It's funny on the show, we almost always, I mean, at least one of the three songs that the guest chooses takes place in that time frame, which makes a lot of sense, of course. Um, that's when our ears and our minds are probably most open to whatever, and the cement cement is the most wet. Um, so it, it's interesting how it gets under your skin and I, you know, stays with you in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, when, I, when I've tried to do this exercise, too, of choosing three songs, that's what I return to is something that I heard when I was 14 or 15. Um, yeah. And then it still comes out in, in other things that I do. It's it's in everything that I do, which is, is kind of remarkable that something can get in your head that deeply. Yeah, I absolutely relate to that for sure. Like so much of what I do today is really, yeah, all this stuff that I grew up with, it's all sort of coming out in my work. And um, I'm really embracing it, actually. Um, these things that was super formative for me. Um, even though I veered off into all these other areas, I kind of keep coming back to this this thing that really was really powerful. You know, when you're young, all these things are so huge. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of digging digging that. Uh, you were on the other side of the pubescent gap when you heard this. So I imagine that you probably never, maybe didn't push away from it. But was there a period when you obviously you embrace this at 14 and obviously it's still something that's within you now, but uh, was there a period when you pushed away from it and, and rejected it in some way? Definitely. Yeah. There was a period because, <clears throat> you know, I think when you're young, you're just super open and um, <clears throat> it's like, you're, you're almost like a child and, and everything's kind of exciting, um, which is a beautiful thing. And in a way, the older you get, the more information you have, especially when you're sort of in your late teens, early twenties, especially with dudes, you kind of <clears throat> become really pigheaded. Um, you know, I'm a very obsessive person. So <clears throat> I'd become super obsessive about a genre or about an artist. And then everything else was shit, you know, and you kind of go through this, this silly <clears throat> phase when you grow up. Um, whereas now, I mean, I actually still know people my age that are like that, which is really depressing but now I'm sort of at a state, you know, not now, actually the last 20, 25 years or so, I feel like everything's, <clears throat> everything's fair game. Everything's got something positive about it and it all gets thrown into the pot and can kind of influence you. Yeah. So, you know, for a while, you know, ECM, you know, I decided that ECM was super cheesy, you know, it all had this reverb on it and it had this thing and, <clears throat> I was into noise music and I was into more edgy music, et cetera, et cetera. And um, that was probably in my early twenties. And then 
then I just sort of realized, you know, it's all good. You know, I love both. Why can't I, why, why can't I be influenced by all of this stuff? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> that maps very closely with my experience. And again, we talked before we went on air about it. we're almost the same age. And I would say the same thing, even in the past few years, getting past that, not, I mean, I was already fairly open, but getting past some of that original orthodoxy in my own head, that ideology of what is good, what is not, what is cool, what's not. Um, there are just so many ways to experience music and other art mm-hmm. um, that it's, yeah, it's silly to, to rule things out based on basically some political element. Um, and that early early 20s thing definitely maps as well in the sense that that's when you're separating yeah, yourself from others yeah. and there's this tribalism like this is cool, this is not, and this is how you identify, uh, you present yourself to the world. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's and it's it's so liberating to just get over that shit, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And just enjoy, enjoy, you sort of enjoy everything and enjoy um, not be afraid, you know, or, or ashamed or afraid to go somewhere, you know. And it's not like... A guilty pleasure or anything like that is literally something that's really awesome so why not why not you know embrace it exactly and i i hate that term guilty pleasure mm-hmm. uh, i i mean there was a time there was a usefulness uh with it for me perhaps when i was younger but um yeah i mean and i guess it's for me not always as simple i'm curious what your take on this is mm-hmm. for me it's not always as simple as people say, do you like that song? And there's so many ways to like a song, right? For sure. Um, And I've started to use the analogy of like types of food that certain types of pop music are fantastic. And I love a lot of it, even stuff that's played. You just hear, you know, walking around somewhere in in a Target or something. But um, that's sort of the the McDonald's version of food, which is fantastic, and I love it. Mm. But there's also fine dining where mm-hmm. you really take your time and you really pour over it, and um, it's a very patient process. So um, I don't know. That's I don't know if that resonates with you or not. It does. I mean, thing. you can kind of find. I actually, we were filing. Me and my partner were filing some LPs yesterday, and and we were laughing about. Oh, I'm trying to remember what was next to what. I think there was a Boz Skaggs LP next to like a really expensive sound art, you know, uh, sound installation LP or something like that. And we were just laughing mm-hmm. about it and, and, and kind of digging this thing that we both love. Like we love pop music and, and, and you know, I can hear sometimes with, with pop music, I can hear things that are so much more experimental than with so-called experimental music, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's all, it's all, you know, there's all, there's positive stuff in every, every genre, or, you know, every food or every, you know, experience, life experience. Uh, exactly. Um, when my kids, speaking of that, when my kids, I have two kids who are adults now, but when they turned uh, a certain age, they were started getting interested in listening to the radio, of course. Um and I, of course, was driving them everywhere. So there's this period of time for about six or seven years when after having been away from top 40 and mainstream pop music, I was back and listening as a secondhand listener. And then at times listening and, and you know, and uh, a firsthand sort of being present for it way. And I took away some of the same things I take away from what the more avant-garde stuff that I like. 
which is the importance of rhythm. Rhythm is everything in this current age of pop music. Um, without the right, without a good beat, it's not going to work. Um, and you're absolutely right about the avant-garde parts. The production choices in some of these would have been absolutely unheard of in mainstream music 20, 30 plus years ago. Totally. Um, stri- uh, heavily processed, strange choices uh, in mm-hmm. the best way. So yeah. yeah, so really what what is the line between the avant-garde and pop at this point, you know? Yeah, that's a really interesting yeah discussion for sure. The second piece of music Ambarchi chose as essential to forming his sensibilities was Go Ahead, John by Miles Davis. Davis piece uh, called Go Ahead John and this was recorded in I think March 1970 but it was uh, didn't come out at the time and eventually it came out in 74 on a record called Big Fun and uh, when I was uh, maybe 11 12 my my grandfather had this store and he had all these records there like he had like used junk and electronics and records and all kinds of stuff and uh i remember i i grabbed this there was an iron maiden record that looked really really evil and and scary so i took that home and then when i played it the music was really bizarre and i didn't understand it and then i looked and the lp was miles davis live evil which is kind of ironic (laughs) Um, and that was a really fortuitous, um, mistake that happened. Um, and I really grappled with this record and it literally, I remember to my ears, it sounded like absolute chaos and just didn't make any sense to me. Um, but I kept, I sort of persevered with it. And one of the things I love, a lot of things that really stick with me are things that I have to struggle with a bit. It's something... Sometimes there's something mysterious about something that just doesn't, you don't, you can't work it out, you know, off the bat, especially when you're younger. And a lot of those records that I love today, maybe in the, when I first heard them, I thought it was random chaos or it was, you know, shitty or whatever. But there was something intriguing about it, so I stuck with it. So this Live Evil record, the Mars record, was that for me, for sure. And then... Uh, there's this pattern in my life where I become super obsessive and I became super obsessive with Miles Davis. I remember walking into a record store, 
you know, maybe in my early teens, maybe 13 years old and just saying, oh, what, what's a good Miles Davis record or something? And there was like a hundred records there, you know, and the guy working in the store kind of laughed at me. Um, so anyway, I became really obsessed and especially with his 60s and 70s material. And uh, one of the records was Big Fun and especially this track, Go Ahead, John. I think the thing I loved about it was of course, the playing, actually, the same drummer, Jack DeJeanette, again. And, um, and I was really very, very interested in electronics as well. And there was something about the production on this track that was really totally off the wall and super experimental and exciting. Really, it was really, really alive. And a lot of it comes down to Tio Macero, the producer, because he was... There's this thing where Jack DeJeanette's playing... <clears throat> and I think Tio Macero had this sort of toggle switch where he was cutting between the left and right channel in a really rough way while Dijonette was playing. And this constantly happens throughout the piece. There's all this crazy stereo stuff happening and um, crazy editing. Tio edited a lot of Miles' records and shaped what they were, actually. He's super unrecognized, I, th I believe, in, in the genius of those records. But the mix is so experimental and um, <clears throat> it almost just doesn't make sense that something like that would work. Um, there's super outrageous choices. There's John McLaughlin does this guitar solo at one point, which is amazing, but <clears throat> he's panned in the left and right channel and the direct, well, the real signal of McLaughlin is super low in the mix. And then in the right channel, there's all this reverb of the guitar solo and then every now and then Tio opens the real channel. He sort of lets it cut in and out mid solo. So there are these crazy bursts of this solo that just randomly come in that don't make any sense at all. And they're super high in the mix, like way higher than everything else. And um, all this stuff's going on. Meanwhile, yeah, Dave Holland um, and Jack DeJanetta sort of doing this incredible Again, propulsive rhythm. <clears throat> then there's Miles playing his weird trumpet stuff on top. Uh, free, a sort of, you know, very open jazzy sax solo. All this stuff all at once. And it's just crazy how amazing it is. And um, again, really, really big influence on me. In a subconscious way, um, <clears throat> where there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of things going on. A lot of the choices are just really like, whoa. <laughs> Why would they choose to do that in a mix? Um, and they're not doing it in a way, I don't, I don't believe they're doing it in a way to be flashy or to be psychedelic or it's, it's, it's just, they're experimenting. And um, yeah, there's so much happening that shouldn't work, but it works in a way that's even better than any typical sort of, yeah, late 60s, early 70s sort of psychedelic or, you know, fusion recording. I also love in those days how um, <clears throat> a lot of, you know, a lot of jazz purists are always talk about a record is literally just a document of what happened. You know, it's almost like a gig, but it's recorded in a studio. And I love how on those Miles records and on other artists such as Weather Report, how they weren't afraid to use the studio as an instrument in that context. Um, and it really was a short period where they would do that. Um, after that, it became much more conventional, I think. 
But that sort of late 60s, 70s, a lot of those uh, big jazz names really, really used the studio as an instrument in the same way that the Beatles and Hendrix and all these artists were using the studio as an instrument. So super exciting in many, many ways. I love what you said about it, how it didn't make sense. I wrote that down and that you can't work it out, which is something that I actively seek out now when I'm trying to find things, because if you are experienced and again, referencing our early to mid fifties age, you've heard a lot of things for sure. Most things you can hear and go, I know what's going on here. Doesn't mean it's not good or you don't like it, but sometimes you want to be confounded, right? That's my whole thing, really. (laughs) Especially with with my label as well. Like a lot of people, I'm getting uh, stuff sent to me all the time. And and yeah, often I'm just, it's exactly what you said. It can be really good. Like it's great, it's good, but it's kind of not confounding enough for me. It's not challenging enough for me. Um, And I'm really attracted to that and always have been in a way. Well, when we had this event, listening to you, to Shebang, um, it was a lot of, not a huge crowd, but the people there were there by choice and they were pretty sophisticated listeners. Um, Not everybody, but most people. And, And I consider myself, again, a fairly sophisticated listener. And there's just so much to unfold in that record which speaks to this notion like I I if I can isolate on one or two one of the instruments at a time one of the sounds generally figure out what's going on um but there's so many different things going on at once that to, to, it'll take quite a while to isolate on each one and as you're trying to do that you're sort of overwhelmed by the entire experience which I mean is a very high compliment which is which is uh, something I love as well it's um it reminds me of something else the Speaking of music that makes sense or does not, um, my wife and I moved downtown a couple of years ago and we're sort of across the harbor in downtown Baltimore. And there's this, uh, I always forget the name of it, I think it's Pier 6. Um, it's a big concert pavilion right on the water. So if somebody's playing there, you hear it all across the city pretty much or at least across the harbor area, which is pretty large. And you get some really cool you know, unintentionally avant-garde weird things happening sonically from a mile away across water and between buildings. And I remember my wife, I came to bed late one night. She'd been up and the windows were open. It was maybe early summer. And she said, I don't know what that is playing over there, but it just sounds so disorganized. And I kind of glommed onto that. Like, that's, that's kind of what I like. Like, it's rare I can find something that I can't organize in my head enough to make sense of it. Um, you have to really work to do that, to, to find those things anymore. So yeah, it, it, yeah, as you get older, so yeah, I, yeah, I hear you. I keep, I keep not asking you questions and just offering my own observations. I apologize. Not at all. Not at all. I, you know, a, a big influence on, on me was, um, working with Keith Rowe from AMM when I was a lot younger. And I remember talking with him about the juxtaposition of sounds that shouldn't work together, creating something, a completely unique sound world that's sort of outside of everything. If you kind of use your ears and, you know, somebody's boiling an egg in the kitchen and it's sort of bouncing on the pan while someone's playing, you know, a classical piece in the other room really quietly and the birds are chirping outside and then a garbage truck goes past and all these things, um, if you really hone in on what's happening, 
there's a really interesting sound world, you know, and why can't, why can't we do that um, in a pop song or in, you know, and a lot of people are, you know, or in, in any kind of music um, where all of these things that kind of shouldn't work together and have their own kind of unique detail all sort of come together to create something other, you know, and I, I love that. I do too. And it's, it's listening for those things and being able to hear them when they present themselves is so much more interesting than I've got this idea for a song. I'm going to do, you know, it's going to be four, four, and then we're going to go to five, eight. And then what I'm thinking is, you know, something that's very consciously minded, something front of brain where you've got it all planned out. And that's, that's when the results are often for me uninteresting because I can predict what's going to happen. And I think the happy accidents that happen through strange, intentionally strange choices are always more interesting for sure. Yep, definitely, definitely. Beyond Video is a volunteer-run video library in Baltimore. Basically, an old-school video rental store reimagined with a 21st-century nonprofit twist. Beyond offers nearly 30,000 titles from every region, era, and genre of cinema on DVD, Blu-ray, and VHS. A collection put together by crowdsourcing disc donations from movie lovers like you. With no rental fees or late fees, members get unlimited rentals from the collection for a small monthly donation. Find out more about joining or donating at beyondvideo.org. Or when in Baltimore, visit Beyond at 2545 North Howard Street. And for a limited time, new members who mention Essential Tremors when signing up will get an extra month for free. Established in 1996, Royal Books is a seller of rare books and paper specializing in literature, cinema, music, and the arts. From Cassavetes to Ida Lupino, from New Wave to Warhol, you will find an ever-expanding selection of first editions, original film scripts, vintage photographs, posters, and 20th century Americana. Visit us online at royalbooks.com or visit our store on any weekday between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. The final piece of music Ambarchi chose as being crucial to him was Music for Piano with Slow Sweep Pure Wave Oscillators by Alvin Lucier.
so both of these previous pieces were, you know, when I was a teenager, early teens, really big for me. We're going to jump um, much later to 2001. Um, and it's an Alvin Lussier piece called Music for Piano with Slow, Sweet, Pure Wave Oscillators. And it's a piece that he wrote in 1992. And it's from an album called Still Lives, which came out in 2001. Um, so I was already making, I guess, experimental music at the time and releasing stuff. Um, <clears throat> and I'd heard a lot of Lucier and I really loved what I heard. But there was something about um, this piece that really, really spoke to me. And it's from memory, um, there's a sound of a pure, pure tone from an oscillator that's slowly sweeping up and down. And that there's a piano player playing very quietly uh, notes that sort of interact with the, with the sweeping oscillator. So there's a lot of beating tones or some indifference tones. But the way it's done is super understated, super elegant, fragile and and very mysterious something about this mystery this mysterious sort of sound world really drew me into what was going on it wasn't hitting me over the head with an idea it was something subtle and i sort of had to come to it um something about the electronics the electronic pure tones and the fragile acoustic piano those two things juxtaposed together really really spoke to me um i was already super into his work um but yeah that particular piece and that particular album still lives really resonated with me and um <clears throat> really influenced what i was doing and yeah i didn't realize it but yeah i made a record called Grape, grapes from the estate and probably around that time or just a year or so later and um a lot of that i would have you know like a tune bell these are like little details that were happening it wasn't the whole piece but there might be like a tune bell and i'd have that pan to the left side of the the speak of the stereo spectrum and then in the other on the other side and the right side i might have my guitar playing a pure tone slightly out of tune with the bell and you'd hear these sort of beating patterns that would be happening in stereo. And I really started to do a lot of things like that. You know, I think in a kind of subtle way, not in a really showy way, but it was really, really inspired by, by this Lucier piece. And um, yeah, luckily, eventually uh, I ended up working with Alvin Lucier years later, um, which obviously was a huge thing for me and also very profound and, and uh, super, inspiring and influential. Yeah, he, he was an amazing composer. Can you remember even more specifically the that moment when you heard that, that the, the specific time you heard that where it really, you were, it really connected with you? I mean, even in, not to the date or time, but just, uh, you've mentioned roughly in your biography and in your life when it happened, but I'm just wondering if you remember anything about more specific circumstances. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I think, yeah, I don't, it would have been in 2001. Um, 
I'm not sure of the circumstances. I was probably at home and it was quiet and I just threw the CD on and all of a sudden, maybe I was busy doing something and I sort of stopped in my tracks, you know, and, and had to just stop what I was doing and just really focus on what was going on. Um, because it did have that, that quality that, that really drew me into to, to the sound world. And um, that's the music that I love the most where, where the, the artist isn't really, there's, a, there's an elegance and a subtlety to what's going on and the artist isn't, you know, so often uh, when I play concerts at festivals, so much of it is about, so many of the people playing are just utilizing volume in a way where they're really hitting people over the head with the idea and kind of almost bludgeoning, bludgeoning them into um, experiencing this thing and this visceral thing. And um, to me, I, I'm getting really frustrated with that and I, I'm starting to feel that it's just a trope and an easy, easy go-to, whereas something like this is so much more powerful to me and so much more appealing to me. And it's so subtle, you know, it's so delicate. And um, it had that feel, you know, it was a huge moment for me hearing it where it was so powerful, but it was so quiet, you know, the, the, the audio was so quiet, but the, the feeling was super powerful. And um, yeah, I love that. I like that notion that you were doing, you said maybe I was doing something else, which mm -hmm. can uh, alleviate a lot of the, the, the pressure of listening to something and trying to accomplish something with it or have it meet some expectation, right? Um, where sometimes, yes, I, that's been some of my experiences as well when you're, for lack of a better term, your guard is down and this yeah. thing just finds its way in and, and I say this again as somebody as we've discussed you know you're older you've heard a lot and you, there you can't help but be a little cynical at times and mm -hmm. yeah when you when you're able to disengage disengage that frontal lobe or whatever it is mm -hmm. things can get seeped in um, I guess it's yeah the same notion I guess almost as a happy accidents we talked I talked about how happy accidents of course are really what sometimes you seek out as someone who's creating the thing, but maybe this is the uh, parallel version for a listener. It's just becoming unconscious of things. What, it, what, how do you respond to that notion? I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, and actually when I'm making stuff, that's really this, it has to get to a point where something's happening and I don't understand why. <laughs> and, and it's almost like the music that I love you know, talking about that Miles piece just before and this sort of thing where I stopped in my tracks from what was going on on, on this Lucier piece. Yeah, I'm, I'm really seeking out that feeling when I make music and I'm not satisfied until I have that feeling as it's being created. In fact, I'm, it's absolutely torturous and horrible for me because I'm chasing that feeling all the time and and it's got to get to a point where where... Yeah, I arrive at something, whether it's by happy accidents or doing these sort of finding these ways to to like catalysts in a way to to make something weird happen. You know, like with Shebang, a lot of the people that played on it, we didn't all record it together. And a lot of the people were sent different material from one another, but all on a time, all on a timeline. 
And actually a lot of the material they were sent didn't even make it into the record. So all these people are sort of relating to something that is on a timeline and should sort of relate to the other person, but not necessarily in a musical way, you know? And I'm kind of consciously trying to get people to respond to the material in a way where they're not relating to other people in a, as musicians do. If musicians are sitting in the room and playing together, they're going to relate in a way which we've all heard so many times, you know? So I'm kind of trying to do things that surprise myself. Like, oh, how strange, you know, how, how, how strange that these two things are working together. They shouldn't work together. And there's no way that that person would have played that way if that other person was playing with them in, in the moment, you know? So I'm always trying to find these things just to take, take the music outside of, of, I don't know, what I've heard before in my own music or other, other music. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to essentialpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.